You're listening to the People vs. Podcast, a podcast that's meant to inspire you to learn about your rights and the law that controls your everyday life. My name is Cedric Hopkins, and I'm an author and attorney in California. I'm sitting down to have some practical but lively and hopefully entertaining legal conversations with you. And from time to time, we'll be investigating some true crime cases. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, I really want to thank everybody who's listening to this episode in particular. This is my very first episode launching the podcast. Took a lot of a few months to get together. There was a lot of planning going on with the website, the content that I was going to create, researching, writing. But I'm finally here launching it February 28th. It's a Monday. This Monday is going to suck just a little bit less for me than normal Mondays. And I hope hope you guys can find some value in this than what I'm putting together. I'm really trying to educate the public as to what their rights are when it comes to interacting with the police. Mostly just to say safe. I want you guys to be safe out there. Hopefully you can learn something from this, get some value from it. So again, it's my first episode. I want to welcome everybody in. So here we go. Uh, first episode is going to be about Terry versus Ohio. Terry versus Ohio is when the Supreme Court decided that cops are allowed to come up to you, stop you and pat you down if they feel like there's some kind of criminal activity that you're involved in. And that takes reasonable suspicion. So here we go. We'll get into the particulars of all that. Let me tell you first about Terry versus Ohio. So what happened to make Terry v. Ohio such an instrumental case? Well, it was approximately 2.30 in the afternoon on Halloween, 1963. Two men, John Terry and Richard Chilton, were standing on a street corner in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. In the same area, there was an officer, Officer McFadden. He had been a police officer patrolling this area of downtown Cleveland for about 35 years. According to McFadden's testimony, he had not seen these two gentlemen in downtown Cleveland before. They were new to him. When Officer McFadden saw these two gentlemen, he went about three or 400 feet away from them, about the length of a football field, went into a shop and took a position in the shop where he was able to still see the individuals. Terry and Chilton were standing on the street corner talking to one another. Obviously, Officer McFadden couldn't hear what they were saying, but he could observe them. He did see them. And what he saw was Terry walk away from Chilton and walk down the street, look into a window of a shop, keep walking past that shop, get to the end of the street, turn around, walk back towards Chilton, look back into the shop, and then walk and meet Chilton on the corner. He then saw Chilton do the same exact thing that Terry had just done. He'd walk down the street, look into the store, keep walking past it, get to the corner, stop, turn around, walk back towards Terry. Before getting to Terry, he would stop and look into the store. The men did that about five or six times apiece, so about 10 to 12 times. While Terry and Chilton were doing this, there was a third gentleman named Katz who walked up to them, talked to them briefly, and then walked off. After Terry and Chilton had walked up and down the street for the 10 or 12 times and looked into the store, they walked off in the same direction that Katz had left. Officer McFadden testified that he felt that Terry and Chilton were planning to rob the store that they continued to look into. At no time while Officer McFadden was observing Terry and Chilton did he see any evidence that the individuals had a weapon other than them looking into the store repeatedly. He felt that they may be planning to rob the store, so that was his basis to say that they may have a gun on them. He didn't see them reaching into their pocket. He didn't see an outline of a gun. Just their acts of going to the store, looking into it, and walking past it repeatedly was enough for him to feel that they may be trying to rob this store. 
After Terry and Chilton walked off, Officer McFadden followed them to where they went. They were hanging out outside of another store, so it was Terry, Chilton, and Katz talking in front of another store. Officer McFadden approached the three gentlemen and asked them their names. According to the testimony at the hearing, they kind of just mumbled something. They didn't answer his question directly. Officer McFadden then grabbed Terry by the arm, spun him around, and placed him in front of him so that it was Officer McFadden, then Terry, and then the other two gentlemen. It's important to note that when Officer McFadden walked up to the three gentlemen, he did identify himself as a police officer. After Officer McFadden spun Terry around, holding him by the arms, he then patted his clothing down and felt along the pockets of the overcoat. Inside one of the pockets, he felt a gun. Officer McFadden attempted to retrieve the gun from the pocket, but he was unable to do so. So then he ordered all three men to go inside of the store that they were standing out in front of. Once inside the store, he ordered them to face the wall with their hands up. While they were walking into the store, Officer McFadden had removed Terry's overcoat and removed the pistol, which was a 38 caliber revolver. He then patted down the other two individuals and found another gun in Chilton's overcoat. Officer McFadden testified that he only patted down the individuals to make sure that they were not armed. He testified that he only patted down the outside of their clothing and never reached underneath any of their garments. Chilton and Terry were then charged with carrying concealed weapons. Chilton and Terry were represented by the same attorney, and that attorney filed a motion to suppress the evidence, which was the two handguns. The prosecution's position was that the guns should be allowed into evidence because they were seized following a search incident to a lawful arrest. But the trial court didn't buy it. The trial court said that it would be, quote, stretching the facts beyond reasonable comprehension, end quote, to think that the officer had probable cause to arrest the men before he patted them down for weapons. Remember, the charge was carrying concealed weapons. Officer McFadden only had a hunch that the individuals had weapons because it appeared to him that they were planning to rob a store. There was no other evidence that the individuals had any weapons. Nevertheless, the trial court denied Terry and Chilton's motion to suppress. The trial court ruled that the stop that Terry and Chilton were subject to by Officer McFadden was brief, just a brief detention, and the frisk was short of a full-blown search, so their rights under the Fourth Amendment were not violated. Terry and Chilton were both found guilty and sentenced to prison. The Court of Appeals in Ohio affirmed both of their convictions. The Supreme Court of Ohio dismissed their appeal on the ground that they felt that there was no substantial constitutional question involved in Terry and Chilton's case. The United States Supreme Court disagreed, and on December 12, 1967, the case was argued before the United States Supreme Court. The court didn't issue a decision until June 10, 1968. At the time the U.S. Supreme Court was considering Terry, racial and social tensions in America were unsettling. The U.S. Supreme Court had just decided Brown v. Board of Education and got rid of Jim Crow laws, at least on paper. But civil rights and social equity for mostly African Americans were advancing very slowly. There was extreme tensions between African Americans and police in most communities. A large number of police officers were accused of using heavy-handed tactics to enforce the law, especially in minority communities. They called them field interrogations, a tactic consisting of stopping, questioning, and usually searching an individual who presented as a risk to the officer. And of course, who presented as a risk was up for the cop to decide. These practices were commonplace for most police officers. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson issued an executive order that appointed a commission to study the crime problem, the policing problem. And remember, while Terry was pending before the court, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4, 1968. 
This was just a few months before they issued their decision. In just four days before Terry was announced by the court, Bobby Kennedy was killed after winning the California presidential primary. So the feeling in America at the time Terry was decided was very unsettling. It appeared that police were kind of rogue cops, stopping people at will, violating their Fourth Amendment rights, and citizens, especially black citizens, wanting more protection from the courts. So what did the US Supreme Court decide? Under the Fourth Amendment, if a government agent, like a police officer, wants to search your home, or you, they have to get a warrant. And the warrant has to be supported by probable cause that you've done some type of illegal act. The Fourth Amendment says, no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause. The Fourth Amendment also protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures. What the United States Supreme Court did in Terry was essentially circumvent the Fourth Amendment with respect to police officers. Courts still have to have probable cause to issue a search warrant but if you encounter a police officer in the street, they don't need that same probable cause to stop you and frisk you. And the stop is a brief detention and the frisk is a patting down of your outer clothing if they feel it's necessary to do so. And I can tell you that cops can always find a reason to pat you down. A stop under Terry v. Ohio by a police officer is known as a Terry stop. A Terry stop is a brief detention of a person in order to conduct an investigatory search. That's what the US Supreme Court ruled. The officer must be able to articulate the specific facts they are relying on to stop and frisk you. The Supreme Court said that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to Terry stops because you're not being put into custody and you're not being subject to a search that would require probable cause under the Fourth Amendment. You're only being frisked, which is also known as a pat-down search, where police can only pat down your outer clothing. They can't reach under your clothes or into your pockets on the initial pat-down and they can't manipulate objects in your pocket with their fingers to try to determine what the objects are. They're supposed to keep a flat hand while patting you down. And the stop is not covered by the Fourth Amendment because it's just a brief detention. The officer is only supposed to detain you for as long as necessary to obtain your name if you're in a state that requires you to identify yourself and conduct the pat-down search. Now this stop is an involuntary stop because you're not free to leave and you're required to remain with the officer until the officer has completed the investigatory search, which would be the pat-down. Therefore, you are detained. And during that pat-down search, if the officer does feel what's known to be contraband or a weapon without manipulating it in any way, then they can remove that item from your pocket or person and use it as evidence for an arrest. Once you are arrested, then they can do a search incident to that arrest and search for additional contraband or weapons. If the police conduct an illegal Terry stop, meaning they did not have a reasonable, articulable suspicion to stop you, and they do get evidence against you, then your attorney can file a motion to suppress that evidence before going to trial. Now, a motion to suppress evidence is a motion based on the Fourth Amendment, protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. While the police are permitted to stop and frisk you if they have a proper basis to do so, if they violate any of the rules that we've just talked about, then what was originally a constitutional stop turns into an unconstitutional stop. And if the judge grants the motion to suppress, then any evidence obtained from that unconstitutional stop cannot be used against you in court. So what should you do if a police officer stops you in public to ask you a few questions or says that you match the description of someone they're looking for? Well, I won't tell you what you should do, but I'll tell you what I would do. Again, this is not legal advice. It's just these are the steps that I would take. First, if I lived in a state that I was required to give the officer my name, then that's what I would do. Immediately, I would ask if I'm free to leave. 
If the officer says yes, then I would leave without saying anything to them. If the officer told me no, that I was not free to leave, then I would ask the officer to articulate the reasonable suspicion they're relying on to stop me. I wouldn't engage in a conversation, or if they said something I disagreed with, I wouldn't say anything. I would just let that officer do their job. I would then inform the officer that I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, and that if he was going to ask me any questions, I'd like to have a lawyer present with me during that questioning. By me taking those steps, all I've done is say, I'm not going to resist. I'm just going to invoke my rights and let you do your job. If there's a basis for you to arrest me, then do so. If not, then I would like to move along. And if the police do arrest you for whatever reason, then you should call the local public defender's office in your area so that an attorney can be present on your behalf if they do decide to ask you questions. And when you're arrested and taken to the police station and put into an interrogation room, you again should invoke your Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and let them know again that you want an attorney present before any questioning takes place. Now, I know most of you feel like if you make it into that interrogation room, you've been told so many times, I'm going to be silent, I'm not going to talk to the cops. And that's what you think that you'll do. But the statistics show that about 90% of people who go into that interrogation room or are talking to the cops in the street, they waive their Miranda rights. That's 90% of people waive their Miranda rights and they choose to talk to the police. The reason they do that is because you're so caught up in the moment that you're trying to get out of the trouble that you're in, and so you wanna to try to talk your way out of it. Also, the police have tactics they use to get you to start talking, the type of questioning they use in order to get you to start talking, and that's called the read technique, R-E-I-D, the read technique. So when you start talking to the police, you're not just talking to a cop and he's considering whether to charge you or not. What he's doing is gathering information so that he could take it then to the prosecutor to see if they have enough to charge you with a crime. So it's very important that you don't talk to the police. Again, let them do their job. If they have enough to arrest you, they will. If they have enough to charge you, the prosecutor will. But you don't need to be the star witness in your own case against yourself. That means don't say anything. Let them collect the evidence if they have it and charge you if they have it and arrest you if they can. And I'll get into the read technique in detail in another episode. But the way that it works, it's a nine step process to get you to confess to a crime. Critics of the read technique say that the technique actually produces false confessions. It gets people to confess to crimes that they didn't actually do. And the read technique was developed in the 60s because prior to that, cops were literally beating confessions out of people and the court said you can't do that anymore. The confessions that you're getting from that are not valid. They're not reliable. So then the read technique was developed to stop beating a confession out of you physically and instead they beat it out of you psychologically. And real quickly what the read technique does is at first they leave you in that interrogation room for a long period of time, like an hour, and then once they start talking to you they develop this theme using psychological tactics to get you to be okay morally with committing the crime that they're saying that you committed and then eventually it leads you down a path confessing to this crime and during this whole process the United States Supreme Court in the case of Frazier v. Cup said that it's okay for the police to actually lie to you during the entire process so if a cop is talking to you about something, getting you to confess, you could be confessing based on false evidence that the police don't even actually have. And something that's really shocking to me is that in all states, except for three, that's Illinois, Oregon, and New York, police are allowed to employ this tactic and also lie to children during a custodial interrogation when the police are talking to kids. And again, that's a separate part of the Terry stop. The read technique usually happens after the Terry stop, but I wanted to put that in there just so you guys can understand why we say you need to be quiet and don't talk to the police. 
So the Terry case was decided in 1968, and since then there's been probably hundreds of cases that have gone before various courts, thousands of cases that have gone before various courts to analyze whether or not a stop was a Terry stop, analyze what the rights of a person were during that stop, if it was a frisk or if it was a search, if they were detained or if they were in custody, uh, making those distinctions. I'm going to go over some of those cases with you right now just very quickly just to show kind of the barometer, give you a barometer of what a Terry stop is and what it isn't and what police are allowed to do legally when they do stop you. In Hybel versus 6th Judicial District uh, Court of Nevada, the uh, Supreme Court held that the police may require a person to identify themselves if they're subject to a lawful Terry stop and if the person fails to do so, he may be charged and convicted of refusal to identify if the state has a a statute saying that you have to identify yourself during a Terry stop, meaning the, per the police has reasonable suspicion to feel that you've committed a crime and they ask for ID. If you live in a state that requires you to identify yourself at that point, if you fail to do so, then it could be a separate crime. In my book, The Black Book of Rights, there's listed the states that do require you to identify yourself. So in the Heibel case, the police suspected that the defendant had been involved in a fight and they approached him and asked him to identify himself and he refused to do so. The United States Supreme Court uh, emphasized that requiring the suspect to identify himself was reasonably related to the basis for the stop. And so the cops had permission to ask for the identification as part of the Terry stop. And of course, that's when they're just trying to identify a very particular person. Also, in another case, Maryland versus Wilson, the police may direct a passenger to exit a vehicle where the car has been stopped for a legitimate reason. And that's, again, based on officer safety. Police stop you and they ask, not you as a driver, but another person in the car to get out of the car. Usually they ask the driver to get out of the car and then backup arrives, they get everybody out of the car or one cop will take everybody out of the car and temporarily detain all of the passengers and they say that's for officer safety. In Ohio versus Robinette, this was a 1996 case, the United States Supreme Court decided that if a lawful traffic stop has been made and the basis for the traffic stop has been accomplished, the police may then request consent to search the vehicle without announcing to the driver that the driver's free to go. So in this case, this is where you get pulled over for running a red light, the cop is writing you your citation and then they come up to your car and they say, can we search your vehicle? When they come up to your car and they have your citation, technically the stop is over, it's supposed to be over, but because they're asking to search your car, not demanding, it's your, your response to that question allows them to either search your car or not and terminates the interaction with the cop or not. That's why it's very important to clarify with the officer exactly when you're free to leave. So every time the cop comes up to your window, ask if you're free to leave, say that you don't want anything else done except for your citation, and then you want to leave as soon as you're done. In Arizona versus Johnson, this was decided in 2009 by the United States Supreme Court. If the police stop a vehicle lawfully and there is a passenger in the vehicle, if the police have a reason to believe the passenger is armed and dangerous, that passenger may be frisked. So you can, you can be told to get out of the car, and if you, there's reasonable suspicion to feel that the individual is armed, then that person can also be frisked. This is justified based on, again, officer safety. 
And here's a specific case, United States versus Dapolito. And this is a First Circuit case, First Circuit federal case. Um, and the facts were that at approximately 2 a.m., the police saw a person standing in the alcove of a building in downtown Portland, Maine. When questioned, he gave rambling, sometimes incoherent answers to the questions. They couldn't really understand him. When the police called uh, their dispatch to determine whether or not this person had any warrants, there weren't any. And the police also didn't have any other information to believe that this guy was engaged in any criminal activity or that he was wanted in any other jurisdiction. The encounter that the police had with this individual lasted about 20 minutes and ultimately involved several more officers and it rose to the level of a detention, especially when they repeatedly asked him to produce identification and to consent to a search, all of which he refused to do. The court ultimately ruled that the detention was illegal and so was the frisk. The officers did not have reasonable suspicion in any way to say that they could stop this person even temporarily or frisk him. Another case was uh, United States versus Davis. This was in the Sixth Circuit in 2005. The police in this case uh, stopped a car and eventually had a drug dog, a canine unit, tried to alert to his car. They searched the car, did the, the outer sniff of the car, and that dog did not alert to the car. So the police summoned a second dog, I guess a better police dog this time, a dog with a stronger nose. And this second dog did alert to the car and then they searched the vehicle. The Sixth Circuit decided that it was an unlawful search because when the police called for the second dog, they unlawfully prolonged the duration of the stop. And finally, a Ninth Circuit case, United States versus Washington. The police went to a person's residential hotel room and knocked with the expectation of getting the defendant's consent to search that premises. But the defendant didn't give consent. The person opened the door and stepped outside the door when the police knocked. And then the person closed the door behind him. So the police couldn't see inside the uh, room either. If they can see inside the room, then they can see something, and they, that's called the plain view doctrine, where if they see something that's illegal, then they can go in and search that area. But in this case, he closed the door behind them. The police couldn't see what was going on. And then the police, which eventually were six of them, repeatedly asked for permission to go inside the room and also kind of threatened the defendant that he could be arrested on an unrelated matter. Eventually, the officers did make their way inside and then ultimately convinced the defendant to consent to a search. And then the Ninth Circuit, in considering that case, found several violations. First, the officers exceeded their authority under a Terry stop in the hallway. Then they violated the defendant's rights by not allowing the door to remain closed. Then they violated his rights by entering the apartment without his consent. And finally, they violated his rights by moving his jacket to find a small amount of methamphetamine. Even though he did consent to the search, it was tainted by all of these previous violations. So those are some examples of Terry stops and how it applies. Hopefully you can see kind of the range of Terry stops. And again, it's very fact specific as to whether or not the officer has reasonable suspicion to stop you and then also grounds to frisk you. So what can you take away from all this? That's what I'm here to do. I'm trying to give you value, trying to get you to be uh, more educated about your rights and how to not only be educated about your rights, but how to handle yourself if you're involved in one of these kind of situations. Now, if you are involved in one of these kind of situations, you're going to be nervous. Talking to a police officer, it's an inherently overwhelming type of situation. Cops use that to their advantage a lot of times to get you to start talking, to get you to consent. So what I've done is in my book, The Black Book of Rights, I have put together a quick reference guide, if, uh, kind of a step-by-step -step suggestions on what you should do in each one of these situations that I'll be going over through all these episodes. For the Terry stop, this is what I would do if I was in that situation. I would, if I'm in a state that requires me to identify myself, if an officer has reasonable suspicion to stop me, 
I would tell the officer my name. And again, that's only if you're required to do so. There is a question as to whether or not you have to produce your actual identification, your driver's license or state ID, or if you just have to give an officer your name verbally. Either way, I would identify myself and then I would ask immediately if I'm free to leave. If the officer says yes, then obviously you leave without saying anything. Don't engage in any kind of conversation, even if they're going to want to do that. Cops do have what they call behavior provoking questions where they try to get you to start talking. They try to keep you in that space in order to try to find something else that you may be doing wrong. Again, I would leave without saying anything. If the officer says no, that I'm not free to leave, then I would ask the officer to articulate the reasonable suspicion that they're relying on for the stop. I would also ask that their body camera be turned on and I would also try to record it myself. But at a minimum, you wanna ask them to articulate the reasonable suspicion they're relying on to make the stop. And that has to be articulable facts, objective facts. It can't be a hunch. So there has to be something they can specifically point to, put in their police report that you have done or that is going on that brought them to you. Next, I would inform the officer that I'm invoking my fifth amendment right to remain silent and again you do have to say that you can't just remain silent there's a, it's a whole nother episode but there is a case salinas that says that if you just remain silent in certain situations then it will be used against you so you will want to invoke your fifth amendment rights by saying you evoke your fifth amendment rights to remain silent and that you would like to have a lawyer present during any questioning Again, that's what I would do. If they did decide to question me, if they uh, had enough to arrest me, that's why when I say let them do their job, I just mean let them figure out the facts that they have, do the investigation they need to, and they don't need my involvement in it whatsoever. If they feel they have enough to arrest me, and they do, I still don't talk. I go downtown, go to the police station, and then I call the local public defender's office and tell them I want to ask them to have an attorney present because they're trying to question me. And of course, we went over not to answer any questions in an interrogation room. But throughout the entire process, I would make sure that the officers knew that I did not want to speak, and I only want to answer questions if a lawyer's present, and I wouldn't say anything else. They're going to try to get you to talk to them. They're going to try to get you agitated. They're going to try to get you to defend yourself in some kind of way, and everything that you say can and will be used against you. So if you say, no, I wasn't over there, they could be talking about somewhere else, and now it's ambiguous. And so now if you have to go to court, they may use that statement against you, even though it just seems like a benign statement. You never know what can be used against you. So it's very important not to say a word, just be arrested and then fight the case later. So that's the law on Terry stops, Terry v. Ohio. Of course, this is gonna bleed over into other episodes because all of these kind of Terry stops and searches and Miranda rights, all of that is kind of interwoven with each other. But this is the baseline kind of law for a Terry stop. I hope you did find it interesting and that you got some value from it. If this did provide some value to you, then I would ask that you subscribe to my podcast, either on iTunes or Spotify. You can also find me on social media at the people versus podcast. And there's a period between each word, the period, people, period, V, period, podcast. All right, y'all take care.